Hello and welcome to the Bankers podcast series, Banking Under Pressure. I'm James King, the Bankers Europe editor, and I'm joined today by Shelley Inhorn, Managing Director in the Economics Practice of Alvarez and Marcel in London, to discuss the economic implications of the European Commission's temporary framework for state aid in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Shelley Inhorn, thank you for being here today. Thanks very much, James. Now, back in March, the European Commission adopted a, a temporary framework on state aid as a means of supporting European economies through the pandemic. What is it and what was the thinking behind it? Sure. So there's always been a state aid framework in place to prevent um, countries from sort of giving support that might unlevel the European playing field. It was decided that COVID was a significant event and under the framework, um, you're able to adjust the guidelines for sort of serious disturbance that member states are experiencing. So the European Commission has put in place four amendments to the state aid framework in order to give member states additional flexibility to respond during the pandemic. Okay, so the, and the, the key here, issue here is that the main response comes from the member states themselves, comes from their national budgets. Um, does this lead to a situation where we have sort of an unequal response from member states based on their fiscal weeks and, and strengths? Yeah, and it certainly can do. But um, historically, member states have always had different appetites towards state aid. So, for example, in 2018, we saw the UK spend 0.4% of GDP on state aid, and that compared with 0.8% in France and one6 in Denmark although these figures might actually mask the true level of government support. So some governments are less likely to notify aid and risk being challenged. Other governments, such as those in the UK, look to support firms on a commercial basis. So they demonstrate compliance with something that's known as the market economy operator principle. So the support doesn't constitute state aid. And other governments rely on umbrella schemes, such as furlough, business rate cuts, or deferred taxation that don't confer a selective advantage and so aren't classified as state aid. However, clearly there are differences in the ability of individual countries to be able to afford state aid, and that can create long-term damage to the playing field and weaken the union. And the temporary state aid framework has definitely seen these concerns grow, and that is concerning. However, these concerns do need to be balanced against the economic consequences of COVID-19 on individual member states and their need to be able to respond flexibly. But we are seeing a position where some member states are simply just more in a position fiscally to take advantage of the additional flexibilities. And there's a divide opening up between the northern member states and the southern member states in particular. So countries with the highest spending powers have generally implemented more schemes under the temporary framework. So Italy, Denmark, France, Netherlands and Germany have implemented the most. Um, the EC has tried to recognise these concerns. And the third temporary amendment clarified that state aid shouldn't be conditioned on the location of activity. And the EC also proposed a recovery fund, and that's got a total budget of 750 billion euros. And it was set up with the aim of plugging the gap in spending power between member states. Although, as you might have been reading, that's still subject to approval by member states after a couple of states have expressed concerns around it. Those discussions are still ongoing. Right. So there have been some efforts here to sort of even the landscape to some extent as best as the EC can. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, but you are still seeing those differences. And I think what's interesting is that even before the temporary framework, there were differences in state aid spend as a percentage of GDP. Um, but also we know that different countries were taking different approaches. So the UK, for example, has always been one of the sort of lower state aid spenders. But that doesn't mean that it's necessarily a low provider of government support. It just provides it on what it determines to be a commercial basis. So consistent with the MEOP principle, so it doesn't flag up a state aid. 
Right. Okay. And and moving on now to the question of efficiency and and to what extent does the temporary framework either create or exacerbate sort of market distortions um, by you know through support of um, uncompetitive firms, for example? Yeah, that's definitely a concern. So state aid can distort market efficiency um, and beneficiaries of equity support may become artificially more competitive in their market and have the potential to drive out more, more efficient rival companies. In the context of the temporary state aid framework, this has been considered by the EC and they put safeguards in place to prevent undue distortion of competition. And they've been put in place alongside the recapitalization of subordinated debt measures. So for example, there are strict conditions on the commercial behaviour of beneficiaries. So these include measures such as a ban on dividends and bonuses until the state's been bought out. They include an acquisition ban as long as at least 75% of the state's recapitalisation measures haven't been redeemed. And there's also an advertising ban so beneficiaries can't advertise the support they've received. Also, um, the EC sought to link the subsidised loans or guarantees um, to the scale of the business's economic activity. So they're linked to the firm's wage bill, their turnover, their liquidity needs. They've also really sought to support direct support towards those that were not in distress pre-COVID, so pre-December 2019, and those who are in distress because of COVID. However, some member states, including those in the UK, have allowed firms to self-certify on this condition. So SMEs who are accessing C-bills in the UK have to self-certify on their financial situation. But obviously, despite these safeguards, there are still concerns that the conditions might contribute to inefficiencies. So there are initial concerns that they restricted the ability of private equity firms and others with particular financing structures from accessing support. And the EC has listened to those and amended the temporary framework to make it easier for people with sort of, I guess, um, slightly different funding structures to be able to access the support. And when we look at the means of distribution um, in terms of this this temporary state aid, what does that look like and is it working well? Yes, yeah, so I think we consider the UK, um, they've, the, the two main methods are C-bills and CL-bills. These are coronavirus business loans available to large, large enterprises or sort of small enterprises, small and medium size. And these are being administered by financial intermediaries, and that's very similar to schemes in other European countries. Um, and the reason for this is that governments simply don't have the infrastructure to assess all the applications themselves. So if you think about the sort of thousands and thousands of applications that are coming in from SMEs, medium-sized corporates, enterprises, there's just not the, the government infrastructure there to be able to go through loan by loan. Um, and this did initially result in some firms being unable to access aid on a timely basis. There's only a relatively small number of institutions were initially authorised to make these loans. And so what we were finding was that those businesses that weren't a customer of those banks um, weren't able to access those loans because either they couldn't get a new bank account or they didn't have the necessary banking history of the institutions. And this seemed to particularly impact foreign-owned firms. So although governments across the EU were really clear that support was available for those doing businesses in the country, regardless of the place of ownership, we were finding that um, foreign-owned firms in particular were sort of finding difficulty in, in accessing those, those arrangements. Um, but now we're seeing a large number of institutions registered. There's well over 100 in the UK alone. And therefore, a larger number of existing relationships are covered, and there's lots more possibilities to open new accounts and to access that support. And finally, Shelley, um, looking at 
this bigger picture and the implications it has for the UK as the country reaches the end of the transition period in terms of its departure from the European Union? What are the the, the big um, sort of impacts here for the UK moving forward, do you think? Yeah, and I think that really is a million-dollar question and one which I think businesses would like to know very soon with, with sort of two months to go until we depart the um, EU. It's really important that we get a decision soon on, on what the arrangements will be between the UK and the EU. Um, so broadly, the EU said that it will only grant tariff-free access to the single market if the UK respects European standards on environmental protection, workers' rights and state aid. And the reason they're saying this is to prevent British firms undercutting their European rivals. However, the UK government argues that the level playing field rules defeat the purpose of Brexit because they tie the UK to the EU in perpetuity. We know through the discussions that various options are being explored. So there's a range from the WTO-based subsidy rules. So if we if we fail to agree a deal with the EU, we'll fall back to the WTO rules. Also exploring bespoke arrangements similar to those with Canada or Switzerland, or even compliance with the existing framework, so the existing state aid rules that, that are there. Um, one agreement that's being suggested is a compromise agreement, and that would involve a sort of toolbox approach for the UK. Um, interestingly, though, signing up to the state aid rules and ensuring reciprocity from EU states could actually benefit the UK, as some EU states tend to be more protectionist than the UK. And so any rules might be expected to impose a greater restraint on those countries than the UK. Although, obviously, it would reduce the flexibility of the UK government to respond to UK challenges. Um, although, again, worth noting that even a WTO regime, which is what will happen in a sort of no deal, um, does require compliance with subsidy rules, so there isn't a subsidy rule-free option available. But I think what businesses are needing at the moment is some certainty on what the rules will be so that they can adjust pre-1st of January. Okay, well, Shalyn, that's fascinating and uh, we'll have to watch how that plays out um, in the coming months. But in the meantime, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, James. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.